I have a sense that somewhere along the line this morning, you might be sitting in your seats and thinking, hmm, the pastor looks mighty fragile and frazzled this morning. And that's no mirage. You're seeing probably reality. I woke up this morning really excited to get to church. You're welcome. And as it often is, as I'm preparing, showering, I'm thinking, I'm... The, the wells of um, thought are just flowing freely and I'm saying I can't wait to get down to the study. I can't wait to fill out this outline on the board. I, I can't wait to give you some of the fruits of my study. And just somewhere in the middle, well actually it was in the middle of the night, I, I felt in, in my arm a bump. And uh, I felt it again as I was uh, soaking up and showering. And so when I got out of the shower, I couldn't see. It was here, so I took a look in the mirror, and I saw this great big red circle. <clears throat> and I saw smack dab in the middle of the circle. It looked like some little creature was having a final time sucking on my blood and perhaps injecting some sort of bacteria into my bloodstream. <laughs> so I pulled the thing out, and I pulled it out rather intact. And... And then, of course, what do you do then? Well, you run to your phone and you look up the protocols for Lyme's disease. What do you do when you're bit with a, a tick bite? And my thought was, well, it must have been yesterday as I took my walk on the rail trail. And that was around, I guess, 2.30 to 4.30, something like that. And um, so that's been in my, in, in my arm for a good 12 hours. So... Woke up Jan, she's had Lyme disease before, thought the best thing to do was to search out whether there was a 24-hour urgent care, and uh, yeah, uh, Garnett, but I got down there and it's closed, so it's the emergency room. So I went to the emergency room, they're very good, and, um, but of course it's always frustrating when they tell you, well, five minutes or three minutes, and multiply that by 10 please <laughs> almost every time they're never getting me out in a, in a hurry and I don't know how many times they told me they were going to print my discharge papers but ba basically they told me that um, they would put me on a protocol the protocol would be for a, a regimen of antibiotic that hopefully is going to be waiting for me at the Hannafords um, sometime maybe between Sunday school and morning worship or after morning worship and I guess some of that in my system and then just look for the other signs so the, the bullseye thing that begins to form it could be around the site or some rash of some sort some other place and some other symptoms but I, I have to tell you folks uh, this morning did not go as planned <laughs> so but um one thing I take comfort in, I've studied this passage every, from every which direction many times in my Christian life, and I think I have something to offer to you with respect to Romans 8. So what I'd like to do is try to make some progress in where we were at last Lord's Day. And even if it's just to give you something of the, the bird's eye picture of what I think is happening in the passage. So turn in your Bibles then to Romans chapter 8. Um, we spent time last week basically trying to see the uh, underpinnings of the passage just in terms of the, of the, of the sub-narrative um, of Israel's redemption from Egyptian bondage. But, you know, we can't think of Israel's experience as transferable to our experience in every respect. Uh, it forms a basic picture. Uh, I do think it's true that Gentiles enter in 
to the identity of the covenant people of God as the Israel of God. They enter into the blessings of that covenant and the blessings of the promise. Um, but yet there are differences. There are clear differences. When Israel left Egypt, they left Egypt geographically. They crossed rivers or seas. They crossed, I guess today we would say their borders. <laughs> they left one place and they entered into the wilderness. And then they entered in ultimately to the land of promise. And um, though it was true that in many we could say Egypt never left them, their hearts were still in bondage to the dominion of Egypt, the gods of Egypt, the practices of Egypt, even the food of Egypt, that they, um, it was in them. Um, yet there was uh, at least uh, a clear severance that could be seen. When we become Christians, there's also, I think, clear borders that we cross, clear boundaries that we pass, but the problem is they're not seen. They're not visible. They're not visible to the eye. It's spiritual realities. We, we, we cross over from death to life, from the domain, dominion of death, from the dominion of sin, from slavery to sin, into liberty and freedom and life and salvation that comes to us in Jesus. But it's nothing that we could uh, draw up on a you can't, you can't see it on a map. You can't. Uh, you can't. Uh, it's reality inwardly. It's the reality of the heart. And so, though it's clear, we come out of uh, slavery and death. We come into liberty. We come unto sonship. Yet we are still in the same place we lived in the day before our conversion. We're not caught up in a in a in a twister or tornado and taken into the land of Oz. And we don't open the door and we see all light, bright colors we never saw before. We're still seeing the same world that we lived in and the same realities that are before us. And we've changed, but the world's still the same. We've been redeemed, but the world has not been redeemed. And the wonderful thing about Paul's perspective in Romans chapter 8 is that it's just so broad in its scope that it covers the whole realm of our own individual experience as believers, um, and, but also the world itself. Um, not only the reality of the present, but also the reality of things to come. And so we do move from this slave, from slavery to sonship perspective of the first 17 verses and we come from uh, another transition that does take place. Uh, it's a from and to. But it's from, I put on the board last week, suffering to glory. I'd like to change that. Present suffering to future glory. It's from the present to the future that Paul begins to go. So you can fill that in on the outline. I don't know which one is the yellow chalk that makes it look good, so I won't even bother. Um, so we come to see that part of this transition from present to future glory also has to do with something of the life story of, of Jesus. Again, the narrative, the sub-narrative uh, underpinnings of the passage, uh, the, the narrative substructure, get that right, narrative substructure of the passage is not only Israel's experience, but also Jesus' experience of death, burial, and resurrection. And um, Jesus' experience of suffering and glory. And so when 
our, our conformity to Jesus that Paul tells us is what our sonship consists in. He is the Son of God who in Hebrews brings many sons, plural, to glory. He's the one here in uh, chapter uh, 8. Uh, later on he's going to speak about Jesus being the firstborn uh, of, many, of many brethren. He's the firstborn son, but many, many sons are being brought to God. Many brethren are being brought to God. Uh, and so... Um, those who, who are conformed to Jesus, uh, that the, the firstborn among many brethren are to be conformed to the image of God's Son. It's not only that there's this ethical conformity to Christ that we do receive through the giving of the Spirit. Again, the Spirit trans- uh, transfers us from slavery to sin to freedom in the Spirit. The Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and of death. And in this freedom, now, we walk, not according to the realm of Egypt or the flesh, but according to the realm of the Spirit. We're introduced to a new realm, a new domain, a new power that's entered in. Uh, the law can only uh, unable, the, the Spirit enables, we, we can now live pleasingly to God through the power of the Spirit. A force, a power has entered in by the Spirit that counters the realm of the flesh. But not fully so, not completely so. There's still a walk to be walked. There's still a daily activity to be engaged in. There's still the need to put to death the deeds of the body. And, and so it's not perfect in this life, but it's real and it's substantial and it's true and it's genuine so that we're not living as we once did. Uh, I think Robert McShane's uh, memoirs, in which he oftentimes expressed such things as, um, Lord, I'm not what I uh, will be, I'm not what I desire to be, but I thank you, Lord, I'm not what I once was. Uh, There's a clear difference from what we once were in sin. Um, uh, Even though we're dissatisfied with where we are, not feeling we really where we should be. Or, and, but blessed be God, we're, we're not where we once will be. There will be that future glory. There will, will be that future hope. But now we, we walk according to the Spirit, and walking according to the Spirit, we have a new mindset. Our minds dwell not upon the things of Egypt, but upon the things of the land to which we are going. We're dwelling upon the things of the Spirit, the things that have been freely revealed to us by God in His Word concerning Christ and His grace and His salvation, our future hope, and all the things that are bound up in the, in the revelation of the Gospel. These become the things that flood the heart and mind of the child of God and bring what Paul calls life and peace. To be carnally minded is dead, is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. But though we have, again, inwardly, spiritually, uh, didn't cross any borders, we're still living in the world. We're living in a world of conflict. We're living in a world of sin. Though there's been this radical ethical change that is happening in our sense of who we are, that we're related to God now through, the, through, through Christ's coming and through the Spirit being given, um, again, we're still living in the world, and though char- our character is different, our, our ethics are different, our thoughts are different, the world's still the same. And it's, I think, in a way, very similar where Paul's going to where Jesus went in a, in a briefer way in the Sermon on the Mount. When he describes Christian character in the, light, in the blessings of the Beatitudes, but then ends the whole thing with, okay, that character of the righteous, that character of the redeemed, of the regenerate, people of God, 
is going to be lived out in a world where that character is not desired by many. You know, you run, you run home to your mother, as I once did, and said, Mom, I'm a Christian. <laughs> My Jewish mother did, but not impressed. Not, not impressed in the least. And I've come to know God. Yeah, okay. Go back to your drug, son. It was better than what you're doing now. That's actually what she told me. That's actually what she told me. The, the craziness in your drugs was better than this stuff that you're now presenting. And that's how the world evaluates things. We still live in the world. And the world is going to oppose us. And the world is going to persecute us. So along with the blesseds of the Beatitudes that describe Christian character, there's the reality that persecution is part of that whole mix. And it ends with blessed are the persecuted. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then it goes on to say, um, Blessed are you when all men shall say, All manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be... Yeah, the present experience in a, in a fallen world is that we're going to experience persecution. But there's a future hope. And we're going to live in the light of that future hope in the present. So the future bears upon the present. And that's where Paul goes in the 18th verse of this section, which is, uh, I put that as the division of these thoughts, where we're moving, we, we've moved from slavery to sonship, now we're in sonship, and now we're moving what kind of sonship it is. Well, it's not a sonship in which God says, my sons will never experience troubles. My sons will never experience difficulties. My sons surely will never be persecuted by the world. My sons will not suffer. Lots of parents feel that that's how they're, they're, they're immunized their children from not just uh, possible diseases they can inoculate them from, but they're going to protect them and inoculate them from all the troubles of the world. Well, God, th- that's a wonderful desire, but it's unrealistic. Parents cannot do that because you bear children into a world of trouble. Man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward, as Job says. So trouble is part and parcel of life in the world, and it's not. And we're not immunized as Christians from the sufferings of the present time. And so Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy, or not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So again, that's what we, our, our Christian mindset, the mind of the Spirit will look upon our present situation, our present sufferings with that understanding. This is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. And Jesus says that doesn't mean you're cursed of God. That doesn't mean God's abandoned you and God has um, relinquished his hold on you and he really doesn't care. It's part of the life of the Christian. These present sufferings are, are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. And just a couple of things about that statement. Remember, that comes at the end. Um, not really at the end, but it comes after a, a remark that Paul made earlier on this whole matter of sufferings and glory. The theme of sufferings and glory does not come to us in Romans 8 for the first time. It's in Romans 5 as well. And I really think that a lot of the things you find in Romans 8 is sort of a recap of things begun in Romans 5. Romans 5 to 8, is, is, they're all a unit of thought, of, 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 of understanding uh, the life of the justified, the fruits of our new relationship with God in Christ. And part of that does mean that not only do we have peace with God, that life and peace that the Spirit brings in chapter 7, uh, but it also means that we have sufferings in this life. He says we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
in the end of verse 2, and he says, not only that, not only that. Uh, yeah, that, that'd be great if that's all there was to the life of the group believer. This rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, un, 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 uninterrupted, <laughs> without any other consideration. That's all we knew. It was just the joy of our future hope. We have confidence that the future hope is good for the believer in a, in a, in a world in which nothing ever threatens that sense of well-being, that sense of hope, that sense of joy and peace and believing. But the reality is we are assailed as God's people. And Paul says we also, he says not only that, not only that, that's great news. I'm not sure you like this one, but Paul says not only that, you're expecting something even better than that, even better than rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but no, you're not going a few steps higher. You're going back to reality. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And that ought to be an amazing thing that we, as the people of God, can rejoice in our sufferings. That ought to be something like, you know, crescendo, uh, uh, Bring us to a higher pitch. You know, clang the cymbals and give a drum roll. <laughs> rejoice in sufferings. Paul says we rejoice in sufferings. Knowing. Knowing. Again, that's our Christian mindset. The mind of the spirit that's life and peace. In the midst of our sufferings, we know. We have a, certain, not, we have a, a, a clear and certain knowledge that, this, that sufferings produce something good. In and of themselves, they're awful. In and of themselves, there's no good. What the Christians are enduring in parts of the world today where persecution and suffering and war and famine and all the host of troubles that... And again, let's get back to the situation in Israel. When those things I just mentioned, war, pestilence, sword, those things were all marks in the Old Covenant of the curse of the Covenant because they entered into an earthly land. An earthly land that was theirs by God's own land grant. God gave it to them. And God says that land is yours and it's secure to you. And I will protect you as long as you keep the covenant. As long as you obey me. But if you don't obey me, you know what? Sword, famine, pestilence, disease, danger, fear. All that's coming on you. And that's not something you can rejoice in. That's something that, for the, your, for the covenant breakers, is something that is a mark of divine curse. But again, I think Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah helps us, because Jeremiah is the prophet to the exiles. And he's, he's speaking to those that are caught up in the curse of the covenant, and yet they're the people that believed in Yahweh. They trusted Israel's God. And they're going into captivity too. And the word of the prophet to them is that here's how your prosperity will be secured in exile. That even in exile, for believers, not for the covenant breakers in Israel, not for the idolaters, not for the Baal worshippers, not for the unfaithful, but for the people of faith, your well-being, your prosperity is secured even in exile as long as you hear and heed the word of God and continue in faithfulness before him. And I think that's the reason later on in chapter 8 of Romans, Paul quotes Psalm 44. 
Psalm 44 is, is different than a lot of Psalms because here's a people who on the surface, uh, we're, we're going to look at it later. I'm just going to tell you a little bit of the story. Well, we might not look at it this morning. We might look at it next week. But still, here's what the story is. That in Israel's experience, sometimes the righteous cry out, Lord, we've honored you and you've forsaken us. And where are you in the midst of these sufferings? And Psalm 44 is the language of the suffering of the righteous. And the righteous have every right to come before God with their complaint, to bring their laments in his presence. And God doesn't say, silence, be silent, you have no right to pour out your heart before me. God says, yes, pour out your heart before me, and know that I'm still your confidence and your trust. And usually those lament psalms turn somewhere along the line into praise, in the reality that God's going to turn whatever the present evil is, that's part of the covenant curse maybe for others, but it's still part of his blessing to the righteous. And so that's what uh, Isaiah says, it will be good, it will be well with the righteous. In chapter 3, he says, it will be well with the righteous. It's, it's the unrighteous that have every reason to fear the danger that's before them of divine curse, but not the righteous. And, and, and so, you know, that, that gets played out really in, in a world in where the boundaries are, are clear. Babylonians cross borders. and uh, People are taken away into exile from a land into another land that's not their own. But we experience all this right in, our, right in Pine Bush, New York. We experience all these spiritual dynamics of living in a world where the curse is not upon the believer. For us, the curse has fallen upon Jesus. Jesus has taken the curse. And so we don't endure the curse. We, we have the blessing. We have a blessing in a cursed world, a world that's still under the curse. And the curse does not end until, well, you get a little further on in Romans 8, and he's going to speak about the hope of creation itself, not only the, the believer, but creation itself has a hope of redemption, the redemption of the sons of God, when the curse will be removed. But still, we live in a world that's still under a curse. And so sufferings come to us. But yet for us who are made, who are brought into sufferings, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing, in the Christian mindset, that suffering is not the end of the world, it's not the worst thing that ever could occur, it's not, woe is me, I'm undone. No, suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character in turn produces hope. Again, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and what Paul's saying is these sufferings must not and should not and will not diminish the hope of the believer. Our hope remains entire, our hope remains intact, even through this whole process of suffering that we're going through. We begin with hope of God's glory, and then in the sufferings that we also rejoice in, we, we, we continue to hope. Why? Because these sufferings are not meant to crush us. They're not meant to undo us. They're meant to cleanse us. They're meant to ultimately, at the end of the day, produce the Christian character that God designs his people to have, sharing in likeness to the Jesus who suffered. And that's also the part of chapter 8 where you got to also back up to 17 that we might be not only glorified together with him but also suffer together with him. Part and parcel of the image of God's son is that the son of God was a man of sorrows well acquainted with grief. And none of us leave this world without sufferings and grief. And we become like Christ not only in the glory of his resurrection but also in the fellowship of his sufferings being made like unto him in his death. So I think that's the point, is that 
Again, sufferings will not crush us. Hope endures in the midst of our sufferings because in these sufferings we become like our Savior and the character of Jesus is replicated in us not only through the reality of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit but the indwelling of the Holy Spirit tried and tested through the process of sufferings refined and made pure and cleansed through the process of suffering. So uh, I always think of the terms when I go into times of suffering, you know, sitting in the emergency room this morning, <laughs> wondering, hmm, how much bacteria did that tick actually inject into my bloodstream? Well, I don't know. I don't know. We're going to find out. Hope nothing. But who knows? But in the midst of this, if God sends that tick, a little old tick, give me Lyme's disease or Rocky Mountain fever or whatever these things are carrying this time of year it's not to crush me it's not to crush me Lord you did not mean this to crush me you mean this to cleanse me you need, mean this to help me and, and that's the Christian mindset the mind of the spirit that's life in peace our peace will not be disturbed we will not be removed we will not be distressed even as the sufferings of this life come. I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. But really, the suffering is part of that preparation for glory. This is part of our conformity to Jesus. Again, back in verse 17, if we're children, we're heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. We suffer with him. He suffered for us. We suffer with him, not to redeem him or redeem ourselves, but to be made like him, to be conformed to him in all things, in order that we might be also glorified with him. This whole matter of future glory, uh, Peter, in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, he, he speaks of the sufferings of the believer. Now, let me read it to you. Uh, maybe you can turn there. This might be one passage worth turning to. 1 Peter chapter 4. Again, 1 Peter is a book that is filled with the reality of the afflictions and sufferings that the child of God is called upon to endure. Um, but here in, in chapter 4, verse 12, he, he gives this wise counsel as, a, as an elder and as a, as a shepherd of the flock. Um, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Uh, I got, I got a fear, fear, fear that the people that have been all caught up in the prosperity gospel, uh, when suffering comes to them, they're going to say, well, how in the world could this be? This is not the deal that God made with me. God made a different kind of deal with me. God's broken the deal. He's broken the covenant. Well, no. Peter says you've not, he's not broken any deal with you because he never made any such promises. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is part and parcel of Christianity. This is what the Christian life brings. You should have been expecting it all along. It shouldn't be anything strange that's happening to you. But he says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You be conformed to the image of Christ, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So we're in awaiting the future coming of Christ, the revealing of Jesus in glory. And he says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, again, you are sharing Christ's suffering, that's part of it, insulted for the name of Christ. He says, you're blessed. That's not divine curse. That's not covenant curse. In the new covenant, this is blessing. 
Because, he says, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The spirit of glory. Think of that. The spirit that's the down payment of our future inheritance. What's the future inheritance? Well, it's to be glorified together with him. what's What's the next best thing or the nearest thing to be glorified together with him? Well, maybe to be one step away from glory. Maybe just maybe two steps away from glory. Uh, a little bit. Of, no, he says suffering. Suffering. Glory is to be found in suffering. As the spirit of glory rests upon you. When the spirit of God meets you in your miseries and in your woes. And you're about to throw up your hands and say, does God even love me? The spirit of God comes and says, you're more than loved. You are glorious. You're being conformed to the image of Jesus. Don't despair. Don't repine. Don't hang your head. Lift up your head. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And so that's part of parcel of the Christian life. Sufferings that conform us to the image of Jesus. And um, there's another thing that I didn't mention last week, but maybe I did. Maybe I did. But I'm going to throw it in here. Again, one of the aspects of the spirit of glory resting upon us is the fact that the spirit of God is given to the people of God as the spirit of our adoption, testifying to us that we are children of God. We're not outcasts. We're not anything but the children of God. And we remain children of God. And God's fatherly heart has never left us. Um, I often think of the term that though his... His hand, I mean, I think of, you know, disciplining children. Sometimes, we never used a hand, we used to use a spoon, but, okay, yeah, the hand is holding the spoon anyway. So, so, so the hand of affliction is coming upon your children. But where's your heart? Where's your heart? Is your heart hating on them? They, it shouldn't be. If you're disciplining children out of hatred, you're doing it completely wrong. You should be the one getting spanked at that point. Because you're not, you're not disciplining your children properly. You discipline them for their sake, not to get some anger out of you, but some obedience into them. You're training them. It's part of training. And your heart is still filled with love to them. I think of the troubles and trials that we endure as God's people. We may feel the hand of God is against us, but the heart of God never leaves us. The heart of God is always towards us, always for us. The spirit of adoption, he says, we've received by whom we cry. And then there's this term, Abba, Father. And do we mention this last week? Uh, I think we, we talked about it uh, privately, but I don't know if the Sunday school we mentioned it. Now, a lot of times that term Abba is thought to mean a term of endearment, kind of like Papa or Daddy or I don't know, whatever terms of endearment you use for your fathers. Um, but actually, that's not what this word means. And in the context it's used in Scripture, uh, thinking of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you think of him um, you know, kind of emoting, Abba, Father. No, it's Abba, Father! He's in the midst of his distress. He's in the midst of the woe of the cross that's before him. It's the crying out of anguish. It's the crying out of need. It's the crying out that you do when you know only daddy can come and help me. You ever in that situation when you're a child? Oh, where's my father? Where's my father? 
He'll protect me. He'll defend me. He'll be with me. Well, that's the spirit of adoption. We cry out to God out of that sense of our desperation, out of that sense of the depth of our need. Abba, Father. That's the spirit of adoption that demonstrates that we're the children of God. You know, we're not turning to the government. (laughs) We're not turning to, oh, what if my bank account can bail me out of this, or your employer, or it's your Heavenly Father whom you're calling upon in the midst of your deepest and direst needs. So this matter of the people of God having this spirit of sonship being conformed to Jesus in his sufferings and having the spirit of adoption enabling them to endure their sufferings uh, as Christ endured his and to call upon God as our father and to um, know the reality of that spirit of glory that will come upon us again it still doesn't omit the reality that that's still future to us but Paul indicates there's not only the child of God that's enduring this inner angst in the midst of a world of suffering and a world of need and a world of woe but that creation itself experiences, again, it's metaphoric, it's um, attributing to the creation attributes of uh, human beings and um, personification, I guess is what that's called, a device of literature. It's personifying the world, but it's in essence saying that this reality of the sufferings we endure in this life is not because God's unfaithful to his covenant it's because we live in a fallen world that's not yet been redeemed and until the, and, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful reality that we've been redeemed but you see our, our greatest focus is not just to be on our own personal um, world, our own personal interests That um, you know why the great hope of the believer is not going to heaven when we die it's something greater than that. It's the coming of Christ. Remember Titus 2? It says, waiting for the, for the great and glorious hope. What's that? Well, it's not going to heaven when we die. Um, that's not the final destination. That's not the final thing we desire. It's Christ's second coming. It's Christ's revelation of his own glory and his bringing restoration not just to me as an individual or to people I love and I'm concerned about as individuals, but restoration to a fallen world. The the gospel is that broad in its scope that it's not only concerned with the salvation of our souls going to heaven when we die. It's concerned with the resurrection of the body and it's concerned with the the renovation of the universe. And, And so again the important thing is in this passage again it's not just going to heaven and I don't want to diminish that because we have from the body used to be present with the Lord I don't want to diminish the reality that that's a great hope of the believer but it's not the hope it's not the final destination it's uh, I don't know I guess it's when you change planes to wherever you go when you need to have your final destination. It's like, nice to come this far. It's uh, maybe you're back in Europe. 
and you're no longer on American soil, you're on European soil, soil, or you're in London, but you got to go north to Liverpool. I don't know if there's plane service to Liverpool, but there has to be that final, that final leg of the matter till you finally get fully home, and that's that's Jesus' second coming, and that's the redemption of the creation. Uh, and so he says, I can, uh, he says in, in verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Uh, what is that about? Well, he says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now, now again, it's not as if God made the world with consciousness or, or feelings or an ability to uh, think about and consider what, what's happened as a result of human sin. But what happened to the creation when a curse was placed upon it wasn't because the creation failed to do what God designed it to do. You know, the only cre- parts of cre- part of creation that failed to function as God had designed it to function was man, his image. But the consequences of man, his image, disobeying God, is that the very environment in which we were made to live suffers consequences. Man was made from the dust of the ground. He was made to till the ground. And now the ground is cursed for the sake of the man. Not for its own transgressions. Not because the world failed to fulfill God's intentions. The human beings failed in its intentions, and the very environment in which we live uh, uh, suffers the consequences. And and again, I don't want to get into this whole subject of environmentalism, but the people that tell me, well, God's made promises that the world is always going to exist, so it doesn't matter what man does. I don't think they've read Genesis chapter 3. Oh, I remember hearing Rush Limbaugh. Doesn't matter what man does. Whatever man does. Man man cannot be so great as to destroy the creation of God. Wrong. What he did, did destroy the creation of God. So, whatever lines of thought you want to reason out with regard to the whole debate about the environmentalism or global warming or anything like this, don't get sucked in to that line of thinking that doesn't have any biblical support in it. Because we've been made for this creation, and our moral state and creation seem to go hand in hand. And so, in a world in which human sin still abounds, creation is still subjected to the curse. But the creation itself didn't get there by its own design. And there's nothing in the created order that desires to do anything other than fulfill God's original intent and God's original design. And God says what creation desires to do, which is to fulfill the creation design of God, will find its own realization as the people of God attain their final attainment to their divine intended purpose in God's presence in a new order of things called the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Creation itself will be set free. We've been set free. We've been set free from sin. We've become servants to God. But we still live in a world subject to bondage. We still live in a world that's bondage leads to corruption. We have had the free, a freedom of the glory of the children of God, but there's not the final freedom in which sin itself is expunged. And when that occurs, creation itself will come to its fullest rights. 
creation itself will come to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I don't know if that means that you open up the door from, you saw Kansas first and now it's Oz. But the, the world will not have the kind of resistance we suffer under. Now I've been talking about Frank L. Baum and the Wizard of Oz. I saw some things, read some things about it and it intrigued me and so it's on my mind. And I can't help it. Often what comes to my mind comes into Sunday school or morning worship or somewhere along the line. But anyway, the point is that Christ's salvation is, is not truncated as we often make it to be. It's just a question of our souls going to heaven. No. It's a question of the curse being removed, death being expunged, corruption being gone, the whole created order coming into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The whole creation, he says, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Again, it's, that's personification of the world. But it's something that we ought to feel ourselves, and we do, because the Spirit is in us, groaning within us. Um, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, have the fir- who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Again, the first fruits of the Spirit is the guarantee of the fullness of the Spirit that will come again at the coming of, of Jesus when the Spirit's work of redemption will fully renovate the entirety of creation. will be glorified. Creation itself will be glorified. But now in this present age, at the present time, there is this inward groaning that we experience along with the creation. Paul says, again, that's personification, but the true groaning is when in the hearts of the people of God as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's interesting how the Bible uses adoption, first with respect to Israel in chapter 9, with respect to the spirit of adoption given to God's people in this present age, but then the future adoption. We come into the expression of full sonship, what the sonship relation was designed to be, which is the full realization of the image, the full restoration of our likeness to God, the full reception of the inheritance that we will receive, not the partial inheritance that we have in down payment form or in first fruits form in the spirit that's been given to us, but the full-blown inheritance of the children of God in the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells in this matter of intimacy, of being in the presence of God, living in the presence of God. We do it now by the spirit. We do it now um, in terms of um, knowing God's presence with us through the Spirit, but in the new heavens and in the new earth. Uh, the Lamb is in our midst, is the picture of the book of Revelation. Um, there is this un- union, un- unity that God's people have with its risen and glorified Lord as we now come to be uh, with Him in this fuller, uh, more personal way in His presence. So uh, that's where our sonship, uh, what our sonship consists in. And um, that is called adoption. We'll see, we'll receive the adoption as sons, the full-blown redemption of the body, the totality of our humanity. Again, um, in full un- un- union and communion uh, with the God of our salvation, in the fullness of intimacy, and in the fullness of the reception of the inheritance um, that we have with the saints in light. And Paul says it's in this hope we're saved. 
Our salvation, again, is not just a partial salvation. It's a full salvation of the, full, of the totality of our humanity and the totality of a fallen creation renovated into the fulfillment of God's purpose for the world that he made. And so hope is the posture of our hearts, that confident expectation, the joyful expectation that sufferings will not destroy. In fact, nothing can destroy it. And we have several considerations that Paul brings as to the maintenance of that hope, that hope that will not fail. As he says in chapter 5, for the love of God has been shed abroad by our, in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Our hope will not fail because of the presence of God's Spirit. And here again, it's the Spirit who helps us. In verse 26, it's the Spirit who has been given to us, who has been shed abroad in our hearts, who imparts to us the graces that we need to wait with patience for that which has been promised. But then we still have our weakness. Again, the Spirit comes not to necessarily strong faith people, not necessarily people that are always on the, on the top of their game, people that have a tough morning like I had this morning. Maybe you've had an equally tough morning, maybe a tougher morning than I've had. And, and in the face of our weakness, we hardly know. Up from down, we feel confused, we feel flummoxed, we feel fragile. Um, and what a blessing to know that God does not abandon us at the time of our weakness. And in fact, it's in the time of our weakness His strength is made perfected. And it's perfected in the prayer life as well. Many times we don't know, even know how to pray as we should. Lord, I don't know what the end of this, this will be, but, but you do. What should I be asking for? Should I be asking for the doctor report to come back and tell me, hey, you don't have Lyme's disease? That's, that's great, so just continue on with my life. Or, Lord, is it better for me? I mean, you know I don't. That even I go through this thing. And maybe that's an opportunity as the antibiotic drip is going into my arm, someone's next to me, antibiotic drip is going into their arm. And we've had in our family and in other relations I've heard of people in hospitals that have a lot of opportunities to witness the gospel to people next to them. And if they weren't sick, they wouldn't be there. So who knows what's best? Who can, who can say? We have no clue. But God knows. The Spirit himself intercedes for us. Now, again, I think the intercession of the Spirit is not apart from the fact that we're praying. We're praying people, lifting up our hearts to God. Because this is a matter of he who searches the hearts. That goes on in verse 27. So it's not some independent intercessory work that the Spirit is doing detached and apart from us. It's something going on within us, even though we don't see it or know it or really can define it. It's like knowing exactly what's happening at the right hand of the majesty on high where Jesus intercedes for us. We don't know. You know we know he intercedes for us. There are people that have very clever, wise, maybe proper sermons, I don't know. They say, well, look, the things he prayed for on earth for them is what he's praying for them in heaven. Well, okay. That's good. That's maybe insightful. But is that definitive? Is that full? Is that everything? I don't know. Neither do you. So there's all much of the stuff of the, of the Trinitarian workings we know in part. 
We know the fullness of it. We just know that the triune God is at work for us. We have an intercessor at the right hand of the majesty on high, whoever lives to make intercession for us, an ever-dying priest, ever presenting himself before the presence of God. And I think sometimes it's the very presence that's interceding. You know, five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me, is the conception that Wesley had of Jesus' intercession. Forgive them, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. Maybe it's the reality of the death of Christ itself appearing in the presence of God for us. But the Spirit also, in ways that we don't know, with groanings that cannot be uttered. And uh, who's doing the groanings? Are we doing the groanings? The Spirit doing the groanings? Probably a combination of the two. It's something happening within. He that searches the heart knows the mind of the Spirit. If you can figure all that out, you're better than me. But I tell you, that gives me a great deal of comfort. That the Spirit of God is at work in me, even in ways I can't describe, and even in the ways I can't define. Yet the reality is, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So, in the midst of the sufferings we have as God's people, uh, I was telling, telling Ray the, a book that Fred Sanders wrote. Um, he wrote this massively wonderful exposition of the doctrine of the Trinity in the Zondervan series on, uh, uh, I think it's basic studies in the scriptures, it's called. But he wrote a smaller book. It's called The Great Things of God. And that's a more popular thing. And it got so popular that uh, Fred Sanders, this wonderful theologian, I'm, he's my go-to guy on anything having to do with the Trinity. Uh, I'll, I'll always refer to him and things that he's written. But um, in this more popular work, he's actually quoting Nicky Cruz. Remember Nicky Cruz of The Cross and the Switchblade? <laughs> Did you know Nicky Cruz wrote a book on the Trinity? I told you. That's <laughs> you know that. You know that. Okay. Uh, so I told you. <laughs> I've told this story before. I'm not surprised. Uh, got a couple of new stories, don't I? <laughs> but for those of you who haven't heard, Nicky Cruz wrote a book on the Trinity that he called, typical American, The Magnificent Three. <laughs> I guess he's seen The Magnificent Seven. <laughs> it's a wonderful title, The Magnificent Three. But, you know, you really think about that. What's more, who and what is more magnificent than the persons of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And they're for me, interceding for me, working for me, not against me. The world is against me, as he's going on to say, but he is for me. If, he, if God is for us, he's going to go on to say in the four questions that are asked, who can be against us? And, and so we, we need to conclude this now. But the point of it is that in the midst of the trials and troubles and afflictions and sufferings and you on your worst day or worst conceivable day can be a child of hope. You have the triune God for you. And in Christ there's no condemnation at the one hand of chapter 8. And at the end of chapter 8 there's no separation from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And no trouble, no trial. Again, that's where he's going to lead up. Um, in the end of verse, in the end of chapter 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he gives us a whole list of things. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. And then there's that quote in Psalm 44. The innocent people are being afflicted. 
We enter into Israel's story, that part of it. Not peace and security in the land with no, no Canaanites and no Egyptians. I mean, they could have had that if they had been obedient, but they weren't obedient and they never had that. But we're not supposed to have that in this life because we're not taken out of Egypt. We're, we're taken out of the realm of sin and, and slavery to sin. But we have Egyptians all around us and Canaanites and idolaters and, and persecutors and those who bring us distress and trouble. And we live in a world in which famine comes upon people and nakedness and danger, sword, all these things. We are afflicted. We're killed all the day long, regarded as sheep for the slaughter. Jesus was led as a sheep to the slaughter. The end game for us is conformity to Jesus. And if that happens to us, say, Lord, you went before me, and I go following you. Now he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. And we'll talk about that, what is more than a conqueror. If you, if you get an answer for that, bring it next week. And then he concludes, I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, that's my overview for you from suffering to glory. And uh, I don't know what needs to be said more than that, uh, but, but whatever it does need to be said, we'll try to say it next week in terms of picking out some of the highlights that we, uh, we missed this morning. I hope it's been helpful. Again, um, it's been a tough morning. But I'm glad, by the grace of God, my part in the least of public ministry of the words over, and I'm glad to hand it off to Ray in the morning worship. <laughs> Let's pray together. <laughs> Father, we're thankful for this time in your word, and we're thankful for the great encouragements that your word gives us in the, in the, in the realities of the things we, we are called upon to face in this life. And we're thankful that none of that is in any way any mark of your disfavor or curse. It's part of even the ways you, you bless us as your people and meet us as your people and, and refine us and, and humble us and conform us more and more to the image of your son. So, Lord, we, we don't ever want to think. We just want you to bring on more suffering for us. We, we don't desire it in any way in and of itself. And, and yet, Lord, when it comes, when you're pleased to bring it, help us to receive it as faithful sons of God, uh, calling upon your name with the spirit of adoption, crying out, Abba, Father, and trusting you that you will bring all of the good fruits you designed to bring into the hearts and lives of your people until we come to that place where the whole creation is renovated and the curse of sin is gone and the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of our Father. We ask you to hear our prayers and we ask you to bless us as we greet one another this morning. Bless Ray as he brings the word in the morning hour as we come to you asking these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.